Well, good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we don't have them currently under the seats around you, so maybe just grab your app or a Bible app um, on your phone. And kids, grab something to draw with or color with. It'd be great to, for you to draw what you hear, both here in this room and those of you who are at home. We're grateful for you joining with us. And we're going to be considering this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And so I planned this series not knowing what would be going on in our nation and in our world at this time. But as we've entered into this season of global pandemic and national unrest, I can think of nothing more urgent than to go deep with the Lord and reflect His character in the world, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, this, is, this is what we need for personal sanity. This is what we need for our church's health. This is what we need for, uh, to be, bring a healing presence to our culture. So what are the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I'm encouraging us to memorize this as a church family. So they're found in Galatians 5, to 23. So you can just write that down if you haven't already and refer to that. And we're memorizing it so that we can pray this together for one another and for ourselves as a church family over time. And so it says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're interested in studying this further, I'd commend to you this book uh, by Jerry Bridges called The Fruitful Life. He walks through the fruit of the Spirit and does uh, just a biblical survey on each one. This is a great resource, so I'd encourage you to do that, maybe read it with a friend. So again, that's The Fruitful Life by Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors. So we've spent the last three weeks in Galatians chapter 5 considering the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit will grow. In that soil we can call gospel freedom. And if you didn't hear the message last week from Taylor Sutton, I encourage you to do that, to go online and listen to that, because the soil that we need to have our hearts rooted in in order to actually bear the fruit of the Spirit is the soil that is Uh, saturated with God's grace and the gospel. We do not bear the fruit of the Spirit in our own efforts, trying to merely keep rules or keep God's law. We certainly won't be it if we throw off all sense of, of God's character and just give ourselves to our own inmost desires. Uh, we need the Spirit to transform us. And we do that as we rest in God's love for us for our failure to bear the fruit of the Spirit and by faith trust Him to produce this in us. So, We'll be looking in the rest of the series at each fruit over the course of the next nine weeks. So this morning is love, and so we're turning to one of the most famous texts in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. And so as we read this text, it'll sound familiar to us for many reasons. One of them is because we've probably heard it read as a celebration of love at marriages. But this is actually quite a challenging text if we slow down and consider it, and it's certainly applicable to more than just marriages. In fact, marriage is not the primary thing that is even in mind with this text in this context. So, 1 Corinthians 13, let's read it together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, this text exists to show us the centrality of love and to lead us to pursue it intentionally in every aspect of life. So here's what it shows us about love as a fruit of the Spirit. It shows us why it matters, what it looks like, how we get it, and where it leads us. So let's walk through this together. So first, why it matters. Why does love matter? Well, in verses 1 to 3, this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. He's communicating why it matters, and he does this by listing several spiritual gifts that matter and virtues. And as Christians, we value these, but Paul brings them up to make a point about love. So the first gift, verse 1, is the gift of tongues. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the word tongues just means languages, so it's a spirit-given ability to speak in different languages, to speak the gospel or to praise God in different languages, either a human language you didn't learn, uh, or maybe even an angelic language seems to be indicated here. We're not going to get into the details about this gift this morning. Um, the next gift, uh, gifts are prophecy, understanding mysteries, and knowledge. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So these are gifts related to understanding the gospel, the depths of the gospel, and God's plan for human history to display His glory in Christ. Next is the gift of faith. He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So every Christian has faith. I mean, that's, you're not a Christian if you don't trust in the Lord. But it can also be a gift. Uh, people can have a spiritual gift of trusting God to do the things only He can do to such a high degree that it's actually a gift. They can figuratively move mountains. So all of these that Paul's listing here are gifts of the Spirit. And then he lists, lists two virtues in verse 3, generosity and self-sacrifice. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul affirms all of these good gifts and virtues, but what's the point? Well, this is actually a challenge and a warning. Did you hear that refrain repeated? Three times he said, if I have this particular gift or virtue, but have not love, then I'm nothing or I gain nothing. So he's saying all of these are important, but love is essential. You can have all of these gifts and virtues, 
But if you do not have love, then it does not matter. Why? Because the mark of true Christianity is love. Do you remember what we heard Paul say a couple weeks ago in Galatians 5, 6? He said that the one thing that matters before God is this, faith working through love. So it's faith that works through love. Genuine saving faith is the kind of faith that's alive and it's active and it gives expression in practical acts of love. So if you do not have love, it calls into question whether or not you have saving faith. We're not saved by our acts of love. We're saved through faith in Christ alone, but the faith that saved always and necessarily and must work through love. So they're, they're always together. If you want to look for a Christian, you look for both faith and love. If you don't see love, it questions the reality of faith. You know, this is really coming from Jesus as well. Paul's echoing Jesus' own words here. Right at the end of his famous, you know, what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus says this as a, as a challenge and a warning. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, he says this. Uh, and by the way, I just think so many theological errors um, come from missing what Jesus says right here and listening carefully to what he says. And, and this kind of thing is repeated throughout the New Testament. It's not just this text, but this is just so clear from Jesus himself. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Sounds like 1 Corinthians 13, right? Prophetic powers. Did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these guys are doing these great, even miraculous works. They're prophesying, which is one of the gifts that Paul mentions. They're doing it in Jesus' name. And on the last day, they're standing before Jesus calling out, Lord, Lord. And what will Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They didn't have genuine faith that expressed itself in works of love. And so Jesus doesn't say, you, you trusted me but it just didn't give expression in love. He didn't say, you trusted me, uh, but then you fell away. He says, I never knew you. You're doing all this stuff, and you think you know me. I never actually knew you. Implication, right? If you know the real Jesus and you trust him, your life will change. Your faith will be demonstrated in acts of love. So here's what this means for us. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. The fruit of the Spirit are more essential than the gifts of the Spirit. Spirit-produced character is more important than competency in any skill. This matters in all aspects of life, in the home, and in vocations, and in leadership, and especially church leadership. We often get this backward in our, in our culture, and 
churches in our culture, many people put others on a pedestal because they're so gifted, because they have such great skill, because they're such powerful leaders, because they get stuff done, because they're so practical, because they're a great teacher, because people are awed by their wisdom, and they, they just climb through the ranks of leadership, and they're, they're praised and put on a pedestal. And then their character over time, we realize, was not matching their competency, and then their ministry or their, their workplace, their companies blows up internally. Leaders can put on an outward show, but their tone or their character, what they say behind closed doors, what they do behind closed doors, what's going on in their hearts is actually dark. And Paul is saying, you can be a celebrity leader. You can write best-selling books that are really helpful to people. You can lead a ministry in a local church. You can have people walk away from conversations saying, wow, you're so insightful. You can lead your company with incredible skill. You can be the sales leader in your field. You can raise incredibly well-behaved children. You can be an incredibly gifted teacher or pastor or server or giver in the church. But if you are lacking sincere love, the fruit of sincere faith, it's empty. Think about even these past few weeks. You can have 1,000 likes on your social media post about navigating the complexity of our global pandemic or current cultural unrest and tensions. You can have a well-crafted statement about the social concerns today that everyone says, that's it, that's wise, that's what we need. Share, 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 share. Right? You can offer brilliant thoughts about what needs to be changing in a company or in our culture. But Paul says, if you are not animated by sincere love in that, then it's empty and you're nothing. I mean, that's the language he uses, right? He says, I am nothing, even if I do all these things. So this all raises the question, then what does love look like? What is it? So why love matters? Now, second, what it looks like. And this is what Paul goes to in verses 4 to 7. Verse 4, we'll just walk through each phrase. Love is patient and kind. Um, I remember uh, Don Carson saying about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, because people are so familiar with them, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, um, because we're so familiar with them, we assume that we do them. There's this weird thing that happens. Oh, we love the Beatitudes. Oh, I know the Beatitudes. And we just kind of like assume that we're doing them. I think we do that with this chapter too. It's like, oh, love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of kind of doing that. I, I like patience in general. I praise patience. It's a good thing. And let's walk through it. Love is patient and kind. If you want to know what love looks like in action, here it is. It's patience and kindness. One of my favorite quotes, and um, it seems like no one's really sure who originated this statement, but it's this. Be kind. Everyone is fighting a great battle. Right? We're all struggling with someone or something. Uh, we're all carrying around burdens. We're all heavy-hearted at times. We're all fighting this. And so we're called to look at one another with this lens of our common struggling humanity and be kind. This applies to what's going on in our relationships, in our homes, in our churches, in our nation, in our culture right now. We're, we're quick to oversimplify things and pick sides right now and be impatient 
and be unkind and uncharitable to those who disagree with us, to caricature those who disagree with us because it makes it easier for us to defend our own position on things. Next, love does not envy. Envy is about wanting someone else's life. It's having negative feelings about someone else's success. Envy rises when your sibling uh, gets more of anything than you or has more friends than you um, and you're angry about it. Or when a coworker gets that promotion that you are certain you deserve and therefore you dislike them for it. You're chilly toward them. It happens when you're unable to cheer on the success of someone else. Next, love does not boast and it is not arrogant. When you boast, you're making yourself big and others in comparison are small. And then you say and do things so that people perceive that that's actually reality. Right? They perceive that you're big and that they're small. So you want more honor. You want the light on you and others to be in the shadow. Verse 5, it's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love looks for a win-win for everyone. Love doesn't say, how do I get my way? Love says, is there a way that we can create a win-win here for people? Um, It takes the posture of how can I sacrifice my own preferences to help others thrive rather than how can I get others to give me or do for me what I want. Those who habitually insist on their own way create an atmosphere around them of just caution Because people know I'm not going to bring up my idea because this person loves to insist on their own way and this has gone so poorly for me every time I bring something up. Verse 6, it's not irritable. It's not touchy. uh, Easily angered. It doesn't emotionally overreact with anger. Irritability rises when our preferences aren't, aren't honored, right? If we want to be left alone, that's our preference, and someone bothers us, We get upset with them. If we want a decision to go our way in something and someone else is blocking it, we get irritable with them. Next, love is not resentful. This is about uh, keeping a record of wrongs, right? Keeping a list of the ways that people wrong you, adding up people's offenses. Now, I've heard of people doing this literally, like, I mean, just writing down offenses of people and storing them and keeping them. But we often do this in our minds as well. We track the way people hurt us, even if we're not intentionally trying to do that, like that's number 14, right? It just builds up and we let it, and then we let it kind of brew and turn into this stew of bitterness in our hearts. Um, We build a case against someone, and now that person can hardly uh, ever do anything that would please us because there's just this pile of debt that's been accumulated that they owe us. And so there's no way that they can get out of that mental debt. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, Paul using this language like believing and hoping. Um, Obviously, at the heart of the Christian faith is trusting in the Lord Jesus, hoping in His coming. And there's also a sense in which just in everyday life, right, hoping the best of people, not assuming terrible motives, right? But here's the question for all of us after this. Uh, How do we actually live this life of love, right? Even one of our problems might be that we sat here and we thought of all the ways that other people have failed to love us as we listed all of these, 
You know, man, that person really is impatient. And that person really is boastful, right? Rather than turning on our own hearts. So how do we actually do this? I mean, this is an incredible portrait of love, isn't it? This is what love is. This is what love does. But the more that we think about it, the more we realize this isn't just a, a beautiful poem for weddings, right? This is a radical way to live every moment of everyday life. And it raises the question, how in the world do we take steps to make this more of a reality in our lives? So how do we get it? Third, as we look closely at this text, it starts to feel less and less like a celebration and more and more like a rebuke, right? And maybe you're thinking, well, Drew, you could have presented it more celebratory. I felt like you were kind of prodding and meddling, right? But actually, the point of the text is to be a rebuke. Uh, This is actually how Paul intended it to feel. If you read the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians leading up to this chapter, Paul is addressing issue after issue in that local church. And he said throughout those chapters, he said, you're being arrogant, you're being boastful, you're being rude, you're rejoicing at wrongdoing, you're being selfish in a number of ways, they're insisting on their own ways. I mean, that's just, that's what's going on in chapter after chapter in this letter. And then he addresses another issue here, and it's their lack of love in corporate gatherings when they come together. They would have heard it like this. Well, well, actually, the, the particular thing is the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophecy. They're really excited about all those things, but they're doing them in a way that don't honor other people. And so he then brings in this love chapter as a contrast to them. And so if you read this in context, it's essentially him telling them what love is like in contrast to what they are like. They would have heard it like love is patient and you are not. Love is kind and you are not. Uh, love is, doesn't envy, but you do. This would be like sitting down with friends who uh, maybe have a really strained friendship or a really strained, well, maybe a marriage relationship that has filled with tension, and, and you sit down with them and you're addressing all their issues and it's all coming out, right? There's, there's a lack of communication. Um, they're not making time for each other. Um, one of them just never listens, always talks over and defends right? Always wins the arguments. Maybe there's been a breaking of covenant vows. And so you're sitting with them, you talk through these things, and then you get to the end of this conversation. You say, let's summarize here. Love communicates plans. Love does not break covenant promises. Love does not shout and yell and leave the room when the conversation starts getting hard, right? That's how it would have felt to this church you first heard it. So if you're feeling challenged by this text, that is the intent. In, in Corinth, there was no engaged couple that kind of listened to this chapter and, and sent Paul off a letter real quick and saying, hey, can you, would you mind coming and just saying that chapter at our wedding, right? Um, so this is here for us to reflect on ourselves. So here's a few questions. I mean, think about patience. Uh, What scenarios show up in your life where you have a surge of emotion and a sense of urgency to make your way heard? Uh, Kindness. Would people in your, if you're active on social media, would people in your social, looking at your social media feed the past four weeks get the sense that you are kind toward those who disagree with you? Boasting. Boasting. 
uh, what do you think that you are very good at? Just get that in your mind. What are, what are a few things that you think you're very good at or something that comes to mind? And how often do you hope people notice? And then do you draw attention to that in obvious or subtle ways, right? Do you slip a note in a conversation that draws attention to that aspect of you? And then you kind of look out of the corner of your eye hoping that they noted that and admire you for it a little bit, seeing if they're impressed by you, if they see that you're bigger than maybe they thought you were. Or rejoicing in wrongdoing rather than the truth. Is there something in your life right now that you know God doesn't approve of, but you are suppressing that and rationalizing it away in your mind? Maybe it's a habit or an attitude. You know, the more we think about this chapter, the less it sounds like us. I feel that way. And the good news is, though, that it does sound like someone, doesn't it? The portrait of love almost sounds like a person the way that Paul personifies love, right? This is a portrait of love, and the Bible says God is love. God is love, and Jesus shows us what love looks like, what divine love looks like in human form in the everyday aspects of life. So here's the the story of history in short. God is a God of love. Eternally existing is a triune fellowship of love. And He created the world out of love and to reflect His love. He created humanity to love one another and love Him and then to, to spread and multiply and create cultures of love that embody this kind of love we've been talking about this morning. But we've all failed to love, beginning with Adam and Eve and continuing through human history. We've not been patient. We've not been kind. We've envied. We've boasted. We've been arrogant. We've insisted on our own ways. And so God made a promise of love. He promised to restore blessing to the world through His Son. And Jesus, God the Son, came, love clothed in flesh. He embodied the love of this chapter. He was patient and slow to anger, and He is that for us right now. He is that toward you, is He not? Endlessly patient with our failings, slow to anger, not arrogant or rude, but the epitome of humility, considering the needs of others above His own, even to the point of going to the cross, and that's why He came, was because rather than insisting on His own way, He took up our cause and great patience and love and humility to die on the cross for our failures to love. And then He rose again, and He sends the Spirit to give us new hearts so that we're not only forgiven totally for our failures of love, but we're transformed so we can begin reflecting God's love. And so, He's now restoring us to do that. And and, and receiving His love, receiving His kindness is what transforms us to live in light of this chapter. So, if you want to grow in love, if you are discouraged as you look at the reality, the honest reality of your heart, then there is great hope for you because the way in which you grow in love is by knowing that the Lord loves you even in your failures to love. Marshall, or Walter Marshall, an author from the past, put it like this. God has made very clear in His Word how He brings His people from sin to holy living. That's what we're talking about, holy living, holiness, love, fruit of the Spirit, 
overlapping categories, right? He says, God has made it very clear how God brings us from sin to holy living. He first makes them understand that He loves them and that their sins are totally blotted out. That's how God changes us. He looks at us in our mess and He says, I know how to bring you from your sin into holy living. I know how to get you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I convince you that you are loved by me with a full heart and your sins and failures are totally blotted out. And as we receive that and rest in Christ, that enters into the, the deepest parts of who we are and sets us free because now it's, it's safe, we're calmed, we have this deep love that frees us from other motivations that have been leading us to be impatient and rude and self-seeking anyways, right? Out of trying to measure up and fear of not measuring up and guilt and shame for failing to measure up. We're just under this covering of love. And then we love Him back because how could we not? And if you love God, you obey Him. Living a life of love. So this is what we mean by uh, repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from your failure to love, just owning it totally. And turning from it. And faith is trusting in Jesus as the one who loved us and died for us and rose again to forgive us and transform us. So here's what it looks like. When you notice that you fail in one of these aspects of love, you know, 1230, you'll be at lunch and you'll be like, I mean, we literally just heard a sermon on this and I just did this, right? I mean, I was working on this sermon on the line that talks about being patient and not irritable. And one of my sons came in because I was working from home and I was like, surged, right? I was like really bothered by what was going on with the interrupting and what it meant for me. And it's like, and then I go back and like, oh, back to the sermon. Oh, wow. Unreal, right? So what do we do? What does it look like in everyday life when we're aware of these issues? Well, when you notice, you don't just get discouraged. You don't just try to say, well, that wasn't that bad, or that was understandable, or, you know, really what they did to me to provoke that. I mean, that's really where we need to focus the attention, isn't it? Right? I mean, often our lack of love is a response to people's lack of love, which makes it really easy for us to think that they should bear the weight of the the attention in the moment, right? Um, So what do we do? Well, we we don't rationalize it. We confess it. We just own it. And we say to the Lord and to the one whom we've sinned against, I am sorry. I did not love you in the way that I just responded. So we, we repent and then we trust. We remember, we trust all through it. We, we remember God's love for us and we receive that afresh, that he is patient with us even in that moment of impatience. Um, and, and then we receive that and we let that be transform our hearts by the power of the Spirit to then reflect His love to others. So if you've been impatient with a brother or a sister or a spouse, you don't just wait for things to cool down. You confess it to the Lord, and then you, you receive His love for you, and by the Spirit you let that love transform you to reflect it to others. You let His patience humble you into fresh patience of your own. So finally, where does love lead us? The key statement in verses 8 to 13 is the first one, verse 8, love never ends. The other spiritual gifts of prophecies and tongues and knowledge, the the things that Paul's talking about in this context, they will all become unnecessary when Jesus returns. That's what he means by the perfect coming here. But love will continue. 
And so here's what that means. Don't pursue the, the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. There, there are wonderful ways to serve each other and be empowered by the Spirit with gifts. And Paul's saying, they're great. They're important. But they're, they're not going to be necessary after Jesus returns. But love will be there. As Jonathan Edwards put it, heaven is a world of love. We could add the new creation is a world of love. And so we want that love breaking into our present reality now ahead of time. And so let's not pursue any gifts of the Spirit or any competencies or any skills while neglecting the fruit of the Spirit. So here's how we live in this. We pursue this not only personally as we've been considering, but as a church family. A gospel culture is a church culture, a tone, an ethos, a vibe, a relational climate that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. It's a culture of love where our conversations and our tone and our social media posts and our conversations in small group gatherings and Sunday gatherings, even in the few minutes after this meeting, where we're patient with each other. We're kind to each other. We're not arrogant or rude. We're not self-seeking, but we're reflecting the character of Christ. And when we fail, we repent and we believe. We confess and we receive God's love and start again. We also pursue this in our vocations. Your workplace is the place where you use the skills that the Lord has given you and maybe even the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given you to make the world a better place, to love people. But if you're not animated by love, then it's empty here. And so the workplace is a place to remember and rest in Christ's love so that you can reflect that love through your competencies. And we pursue this as in our homes, as friends and roommates and parents and siblings and younger children. You're learning. We're all learning continually that we're not as patient and kind as we thought we were five minutes ago. And that's a constant way of growing. The more we grow in patience, the more we'll actually become aware of our impatience. We'll feel like we're getting worse, but we're not. I mean, no, no one, by the way, you might be leaving here feeling like, man, I felt better about my own, you know, sanctification, growth, and holiness than when I came. Be encouraged. That is part of growth, right? Awareness of reality is progress. And you, you didn't get worse. You just had, had acknowledgement, fresh acknowledgement about honest about who you are, and then you receive God's love for you because He totally forgives you of it as you come to Him, and then He empowers you to change. And so we do this in every aspect of life. So let's pray and thank the Lord for His goodness in, being, um, in, in revealing our hearts to ourselves and in covering us with His love, and then we'll, we'll sing. Our Father, we thank You for Your endless love. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you for being a triune fellowship of love. We praise you for being a God who is love. And we thank you for making us an expression of your hearts to love you back. And we, we confess together, both here and in our homes listening, that we have so often failed to love you and reflect that to others. And so we thank you that your love is patient and you are long-suffering. And so you didn't just judge us immediately, but you, Father, you sent your Son uh, to be the epitome of love and to die for our failures and to rise again. So, Spirit, would you then transform us, convince us of the love of our Father, Son, and Spirit. 
and help us to reflect this to others today. In Jesus' name, amen.